us for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where, it, where he, is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machai, son of Amiel in Lo-Dibar. So King David had him brought from Lo-Dibar, from the house of Machai, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You don't get many Mephibosheths these days, do you? I've noticed that the new curate gets Mephibosheth, don't you worry? Once upon a time, there was a great king. He ruled over the whole universe because he made it. But there were rebels. Those who decided to turn against the great king, who didn't want to follow his rules. Those rebels decided that they were going to do whatever they wanted to do, whatever the consequences, even when that meant chaos and suffering and destruction. That which had been perfect became corrupted. That which had been holy became profane. To repair the damage, to heal the land, to bring peace and order, what was the great king to do? The rebels wouldn't listen to reason. They wouldn't turn from their wicked acts. Surely the only option left for the good of the universe was to defeat them. Now the great king was a just king, perfectly just, perfectly good in everything he did. Surely such bad things then couldn't go unpunished. That wouldn't be just. And the king was perfectly just. 
So much hurt and anguish and pain had been caused. And the very rebellion itself was actually an affront to the whole of creation. Surely the only answer was to to purge the sin. The only answer was death. Surely that would be the only way to heal the universe that the great king made to restore order and peace and blessing. Well, in our passage today, we have two major figures. On the one hand, we have David. He's gone from shepherd boy to mighty king and vanquisher of all his enemies. He could be called David the Conqueror or or David the Great. And here he is in our passage in all his finery. He's taken the kingship from the family of Saul. He's united all the tribes of Israel behind him. He's beaten or is about to beat every foreign enemy and every threat to his kingdom. The man who once hid in caves to escape the wrath of Saul now sits enthroned in Jerusalem, his conquered capital. But what's more important than all of that is that David has God's favor. It is God who has given David the kingdom just as surely as it was God who brought down Goliath with David's stone. David is the anointed king. On the other hand, the other major figure in our passage today, we have Mephibosheth. Poor Mephibosheth. If David's story to this point is one of rise and rise with bumps and caves along the way, for poor Mephibosheth, it's been only fall and fall. Mephibosheth, born the grandson of the king, a son of the heir to the throne, Never mind a silver spoon, Mephibosheth had a golden spoon in his mouth, which would have made it even harder to say his name. Things looked bright for Mephibosheth. But if David's story up until now has been one of rags to riches, well, for poor Mephibosheth, it's been one of riches to rags. If David was destined for kingship, Saul was destined to lose it. And like a, like, like a line of dominoes or a house of cards, with the fall of Saul... Well, it brings the whole rest of the family tumbling down with him. Though one of Saul's sons would resist David for a while, ultimately, almost all the line of Saul is extinguished. In 2 Samuel 4, we see that Mephibosheth was just five years old when he found out that his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul had been killed in battle by the Philistines. In the chaos and carnage that followed with everyone running here and there, not knowing what to do, he was dropped by his carer. And the damage done was so bad that he became lame in both his feet. By the time we reach our passage today, Mephibosheth has basically been living in hiding in the middle of nowhere for most of his life. From being born in a palace at the center of this great kingdom to hiding in someone's house in the middle of nowhere, totally dependent on this person. You see, as the, as the grandson of Saul, as the son of Jonathan, he is a threat to David, just by virtue of the blood running through his, de- his veins. Whether he himself knew it or not, someone could prop him up and say, this is the true king. Even though he himself can't fight, even though he himself can't work, someone could hold him up and say, this is the true king, let's use him to overthrow David. You see, if things couldn't get any better for David... Well, they couldn't really get any worse for Mephibosheth. Nearly got it wrong. When David had Mephibosheth brought before him, there can only have been one thing Mephibosheth expected. The same thing that happened to any potential threat to the throne in almost any country in history. Death. 
See, that would be standard practice through, yeah, almost anywhere in history. You only need to go to the Tower of London to see what happens to anyone who has the bad fortune of being born in the house of former kings, either death or lifetime imprisonment, where the best you can do is carve your name into the wall in Latin. If that was the king, that was, if you were the king, that was the only way that you would be able to secure your throne. Any threat had to go. Mephibosheth thought he was a goner. David had found his hiding place and had been brought before him. Surely all that was left was for David to pronounce judgment on him, for him to be dragged out and killed. It was the only logical explanation. Mephibosheth was a goner. And David knew that that's what Mephibosheth thought was going to happen. That's why in verse 7 he says, don't be afraid. You see, we know what Mephibosheth didn't. We know that David is actually going to do something amazing. Instead of doing what any human king would do, he does what a heavenly king would. The clue is in verse 1. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? But what does it mean? What's that all about? Well, in verse 1, the word David uses that we've translated kindness in our NIVs is the Hebrew word chesed. Is that right? Chesed, which means a sort of faithful love. This is the sort of faithful, steadfast love promised within a covenant promise. It's the same faithful, steadfast love that God himself displays with his people. This is what David wishes to show now. But why? Why for Jonathan's sake? Well, we need to turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 20 to understand what's going on. Sarah helps us to understand it, but in that chapter we see that David made a covenant with Jonathan. Jonathan and David were the best of friends, but Jonathan's father, King Saul, so his father and his king, saw David as a threat. He was angry with him, he wanted to kill him. And so Jonathan is torn between these two figures, his best friend who's innocent, who's done nothing wrong, and his father who's also the king who he's supposed to be loyal to. Jonathan promises they make a covenant. Jonathan promises to help protect David from his dad. And in exchange, David promises never to cut off his kindness from Jonathan's family. And it's that promise, a promise that was probably made maybe 20 years before our passage, a promise made by David when, you know, he was a bit of a nobody who who really just wanted to survive and was going to say anything to Jonathan to kind of make sure he wasn't stabbed to death, that David, now the powerful king on his throne in Jerusalem, still decides to fulfill. You know, he could have simply ignored it, couldn't he? No one else knew he'd made the promise, so there's no pressure on him to keep it. The only one who knew was Jonathan, and he's dead. He could have said to himself, you know what, I only made that promise under duress. I needed to survive, so I don't have to keep it now. It doesn't count. He could have said, I know I made that promise then, but my circumstances are very different now, and it was a long time ago. Do I really need to keep it? Certainly, it would have been much more convenient for David to to come up with any excuse to wriggle out of it and to kill Mephibosheth, to make sure that there was no threat to his throne. But he doesn't. Remarkably, he doesn't. He decides to actively fulfill his promise. In the middle of his ruling and reigning, he pulls Mephibosheth out of hiding and rather than killing him, says, Mephibosheth, I will restore to you 
all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you back all this family land. You're going to be a wealthy man again, Mephibosheth. You won't have to hide anymore, Mephibosheth. You and your family will be well taken care of. This generosity alone, this would have more than fulfilled the promise he made to Jonathan. But David doesn't end there, does he? He adds something else. And you will always eat at my table. You will always eat at my table. So what's happened? What's happened? Let's take stock. Well, in one moment, Mephibosheth has gone from an enemy of the state, in hiding, helpless, unable to fight, waiting to be killed, terrified, to a respected, honored, wealthy man, who is welcomed, despite all the history, despite all the bloodshed, to sit and eat at the king's table. And to sit and eat at the king's table was an honor reserved for the sons, the king's own sons. And so, the son of Jonathan becomes, in a sense, a son of David. David not only restores to Mephibosheth the wealth that was his inheritance from Saul, but even more importantly, in giving him a seat at the table, he symbolically adopts him as a son of the king, just as he would have been under Jonathan. And so David's promise to Jonathan is overflowingly fulfilled. It's generously, graciously, lovingly fulfilled, despite the cost and the risk to David and his throne. You see, David doesn't just keep his promise. He goes above and beyond it, despite the cost, despite the risks. That is true hospitality. Do you remember the great king I mentioned at the beginning? The one needing to deal with the rebels in his kingdom, the rebels that deserved death. Well, the great king didn't want to kill the rebels. He wanted to show mercy. He wanted to show grace. He wanted to show love because he was merciful, because he was gracious, because he was loving. Now, the great king had a dear son, his very nature, who was also merciful, who was also gracious, who was also loving. The son would take the punishment the rebels deserved. A price needed to be paid, justice needed to be done. Let it be done on me, he said, so that they can live. Let it be done on me, he said, so that the rebels can return home. I will die in their place. I will take the punishment they deserve. Then, then, when I have done that for them, when I have done that for them, taken their place, let them come back, not only as forgiven rebels, let them come back still, not, not just as forgiven rebels, distrust this, held at a distance, but Father, let them come back as though they were me. A son or daughter of you, the great king, let them sit at my table, adopted into your family, as though they had never done anything wrong, as though they had always been close to your heart, Father, as I am. If they will come to me, Father, then let them be as me to you. If they will come to me, let them be as me to you. Has there ever been a greater more perfect act of hospitality than that offered to us by the Father through his Son. If we are Christian, we can say that we who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. 
That's hospitality. And when we receive hospitality like that, undeserving, life-transforming, boundary-breaking, culture-shattering, awe-inspiring, overwhelming, grace-infusing, love-displaying, hospitality like that, well, doesn't it make you want to show that same hospitality to others? Don't you want to do that? What would, what would that look like? It's, it's different. We're not David. We don't rule a kingdom. We can't make people the heirs. But maybe it means reconciliation. Maybe it means you taking the first step, taking the initiative, however hard it feels, to be the one who says, I am going to love that person even though they irritate me. I'm going to let that hurtful comment go and renew this relationship even though it twists in my gut. Or I'm going to invite them round for coffee again or dinner again, even though they've not invited me round, and that just annoys me a little bit. Maybe it even means consciously inviting someone from church who you would just never normally speak to or, or really consider to be in your friendship group, and deliberately making an effort and going and speaking to them and inviting them round and getting to know them. Well, you know, it might even be something more costly than that. It could be as big as speaking to that family member who who really upset you, whether last month or all those years ago, speaking to them, reaching out to them, even though it really hurts to do it. Because you know that what God did for you, you know what Jesus did for you, even though it really hurt to do it. Or it could be choosing to be there for a person when they're going through real difficulty and suffering, Not just sending a text, not that there's anything wrong with that, and maybe that's all you can do. But not just doing that, dropping everything if they need you to be there for them. Giving up your day off, that day off that you've been looking forward to, to be there for them if they need you. Cooking for them maybe, maybe looking after their children for them. Talking to them at 10 o'clock at night on the phone if they're really struggling. When, When they really need you, being willing to be there for them. Or, you know, perhaps it might even be something like adoption. Because you have been adopted into God's family, because you have received the benefits of being a child of God, you decide you want to show that same love to, to others. Surely this is one of the greatest, one of the most costly offers of hospitality. Offering the blessing of a family to a child who doesn't have one. Devoting your life to them, being patient with them, forgiving them for the hurt that they will do, putting up with the lost evenings and the broken nights and the tiredness, treating them as your own flesh and blood, loving them as Christ loved you. Each and every one of these examples, each and every one is is a powerful display of hospitality. A wonderful display of God's love and graciousness displayed in your life through the love that you are showing. Each is costly, some more than others. It was costly for David to welcome Mephibosheth in. It risked his throne, his life. It was costly for Jesus to come, to suffer and die. True hospitality can be costly. But true hospitality displays the love of God like few other things can, precisely because it is costly. What is hospitality after all? Isn't it love? David's love for Jonathan displayed through his son. God's love for us at work through his son. Our love for others 
God's love for others, displayed through the tea and coffee, the bread and butter and biscuits, the soup, the sausages, the cake, the conversation, through the time and attention and affections and actions that we give of ourselves to others. That is hospitality. That is love. Costly, generous, divine. Amen.